and good evening our fellow lovers of love and welcome for and thank you for joining us on this excursion through the stream of consciousness we're <laughs> ah! starting to laugh already <laughs> well because i screwed it up already and every time i screw it up already it's like oh well, there it goes <laughs> and it throws me off the sooner i screw it up the, the worse it gets and so when I screwed up, I said welcome instead of thank you. And then it jacked me up because I corrected myself. And yeah. And I'm a bit emotional. I was just listening to Lean On Me just before the show. And that song always makes me cry. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so my eyes are still watering, you know, a little nasally and a whole nine yards. It's not the world's greatest look. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Well, you look good to me. But, well, yeah, you got rose-colored glasses. I, you know, uh, you I appreciate it. Don't get me wrong. You, but look, you look like a great god to me. Yeah, yeah to you. Is, is <laughs> I've seen myself in the mirror. There is no great god here. Uh, <laughs> I'm just. Well, anyway, thank you for joining us on this stream of whatever it's going to be down the... (laughs) (laughs) And off towards the Lake of Tranquility. There, we'll just skip it because I drew a blank on what the river was. Um, So, anyway, I'm going to have to write that down. I've been saying that for over a year now. I'm going to have to write that down. (laughs) Yes, you have. <laughs> oh, it's going to be one of those days. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, to get us off the top of the off the top, if you would like to send Lovey a questions or comments, and she would love to hear from you. you can yes, I would. Dear Lovey, oh, you can also contact me at the email address. But dear Lovey at love at late night love dot us. You can go to our website, uh, latenightlove.us, and contact us there. You can find me on Twitter at Jazzrack, and which for some reason isn't on your screen. There you go. And uh, you can find us on your Facebook and other social media platforms. And you can always find us on anchor.fm slash latenightlove. Just search Late Night Love. We are generally the only podcast that shows up. So, there's I think there's a radio show somewhere in Atlanta, I think, that is called Late Night Love. Oh. I think that's really the only thing. And then there's some books that have that in the title. But in the longer title, so it comes up if you search. But for the most part, it's just us. If you look for us that way. Which is strange. So we do have, a, as Lovey was just talking about, she's going to feel lost in this episode because it's kind of an eclectic uh, group of topics and they're kind of just thrown together. I didn't take the time to group them in any coherent order this year, this year, this episode, this show, this week. God, what was that? <laughs> I feel like my mother or my grandmother when they used to run through the list of names before they got to the one that she was actually wanted to talk to. What was that? That's <laughs> how discombobulated. Tell me what. I shouldn't be listening to Lean On Me just before the start of the show. I wonder what you were doing. <laughs> I probably shouldn't. But I like it. It's just an emotional thing. So we got time on the on the schedule here today, which is an interesting subject. And you, we've talked about this. Time doesn't actually exist. Yes, Whether you, you said talk, that. You know, do you think of it as? Yes, a, it does. No, it's it's a man-made object. It's like a hammer or a yardstick. It doesn't exist in nature. 
It doesn't exist in nature. Yes, it does, because time happens in nature. No, time by itself it doesn't exist. It only exists because we measure it. Yes, yes. yes. Okay, I'll concede that. Nothing else in that we know of in the universe measures time. Plants don't measure time. They respond to environmental conditions. Animals get habitualized to environmental changes and conditions. They don't mark time. We are the only things that mark time. It's a very useful tool. Don't get me wrong. But it's just that. It's a tool. It's like a measuring cup. A cup of water doesn't exist in nature. We use that to, as a tool to help ourselves. And that's what time is. I mean, if time is elastic, as Einstein would think, you know, the faster you go, the slower time, time goes. But you have to think about how we measure time. We actually measure time by rate of decay. Even an atomic clock is simply measuring the rates of decay uh, of the atoms. A quartz clock measures the vibrations of quartz which is its decay. You know, the uh, old-fashioned clocks, it's the decay of the weights, it's the decay of the spring, it's the decay of the... We're measuring rates of decay. And so what happens at speed is rates of decay slow down. And so what you measure, it's not that time slows down, it's how we measure time slows down. It's our tool. <laughs> Poor Lovey just made the over her head. Move job. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's time does it's the rate of decay slows down. So and since we use rate of decay to measure time, we perceive time is slowing down. No. Which is why when you say if you go off and you get into the speed of light and then you come back, you know, the people where you left will you won't have aged nearly as much as the people you left you know you could be gone five years but the people you you left will have aged ten years huh and but really it's not that time has passed differently it's that you've decayed and you've grown decayed at a different rate okay well the theory is that velocity is that the faster you go towards the speed of light the energy is used towards the speed of light, so it can't be used to decay or to grow. And so it's an energy usage thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it's this is all completely theoretical, hypothetical, because, again, there's only so much we can do, but it's a useful tool. But time by itself is not a, its own existence. Do you see what I'm saying, Mila? I think I do. Now, you know, other people will feel differently. But, you know, time travel can't exist because, remember, it's not just time you have to travel through, it's space. We are traveling through space. So if you're going to travel back in time, you don't have to tra travel back through time, you have to travel back through space. The Earth is spinning on itself, and it's also rocketing through space. <laughs> okay, what about wormholes? What about wormholes? They're supposed to take you to different times. We don't know what wormholes even exist. We, they're theoretical existence and based upon theories of black hole, based upon known mathematics and whether it actually does. Now, my theory about black holes or even wormholes is that, you know, it's the 
Do you know what the Big Bang? It's the back end of a, of a supernova that creates. So essentially, is you know, as, as a, a black hole absorbs in all the matter from one universe, it pumps it out somewhere into the into the next one, which is why we're continually expanding. And so there's an infinite number of universes going around there, but in the grand scheme of things, size is also relative. So what we perceive as big to some other being in existence can be the size of your soda can. It's like the ant relative size of a leaf to us and an ant. Uh-huh. You know, to us, a leaf is just a small leaf. To an ant, a leaf is this big, huge-ass thing. So your perceptions of it. An ant has no perception of the moon. It's just this light out somewhere, right? It can't see. It's so vast. It has no perception of... It just can't. It's not possible. Just based upon its size. Anyway. Okay. Time, space, size, it's all of this. It's all relative. That's what Einstein actually got right. It's all relative. Relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all relative based upon your perceptions. Where you're starting from, your perception point, however you want to actually describe that. Mm. So, anyway. So there was this nice quote, and it came across a philosophy. Um, a newsletter I come across. Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. This is Bell Brooks. He's an author. As a means of escape. Yes, as a means of not having to be yourself. Be with yourself. Oh. It's the thing oh, I like my company. I'm a, one of the smartest people I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can be with myself, but a lot of people have trouble sitting with themselves for whatever reason, whether they don't like themselves very much and so they have to keep busy. Some people just can't sit. You know, it's... But whatever, if, it's, if you can't sit with yourself and love yourself wholly, it's very difficult to wholly love somebody else. I'm not going to say it's impossible. Because I have experienced enough in the world to know that there's enough variety in humans and human natures and how human people interact and everything that there's always exceptions. But it's a difficult road to hoe if you cannot love yourself on genuinely and fully loving somebody else. Unconditionally loving them, like you're supposed to. I mean, love is never completely unconditional, don't get me wrong, except maybe the love of your children. And even that has limits. So, <laughs> <laughs> no biting. Well, you know, there are limits to what you could allow your, uh, you know, abusive narcissistic child to well, do. Well, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's issues. You know, and you may have a have had a role in that, and you have to accept that responsibility as well. But as a parent, you know, but still, there are even unconditional love has has limits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love you, but I can't deal with you anymore. Sorry. Yeah. 
it, that does happen. It's a sad when it does. It's because it's how families and societies get disconnected, but it is what it is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a sad note. How'd that one go? Uh, that yeah, how did that one go? <laughs> <that one? laughs> <laughs> that was rude. <laughs> but that's a good quote. Yeah. It's it's being able to sit with yourself is an important thing. And learning how to love yourself and accept you for your flaws and your uh, and your lovely hair. Yeah. <laughs> you got great hair. I got great hair. I do got great hair, man. You know. I introduced you to my family. That's the first thing that they said. You <laughs> got great hair. Yeah. Well, and you know, loving yourself actually means being honest with yourself, even when you find figure out that you weren't always honest with yourself. I had to deal with that this week. I had to uh, issue an apology to a friend who you know didn't themselves feel I had to do an apology, but. I had not been honest with him one day because I wasn't being honest with myself. Ah. We were at an event. I wasn't feeling very well. He asked me if, if I, you know, are you okay? Do you need any help? And I told him, yeah, I'm fine. No, I'm good. And the reality was I wasn't. And this is someone with whom we have a, you know, a loving, honest, respectful human relationship with. And uh, it's, it's a violation of, well, it's an unintentional violation of trust. It was an actual violation of trust. And so, you know, I had to go back and, and deal with that. But you can't, if you can't sit with yourself, you can't deal with those things. You'll never sit with yourself long enough to go, you know what? I wasn't honest with my, one of the close people I'm closest to, one of the you know, people I can trust my life with, simply for vanity pure freaking vanity it's not that I didn't think you know when you have anxiety disorder you have a fear of rejection and so you can asking for help can be difficult but there are people with that's not an issue even the anxiety disorder that can't bust it you know that's never a question and yet <laughs> you, you know you say no I'm fine anyway when you're not So, you know, how much of a violation is it? Not really, but it is. No one's going to mind. No one's going to care. Someone who loves you and cares about you is going to go, what are you talking about? There's no real need for this. But the reason they can say that is because you do. It's because you have an open, honest, caring relationship. And, you know... But it all starts with actually being able to be honest with yourself and be honest with your own failures and then figure out how to correct them as best you can. Sometimes you can't correct them. Sometimes there's nothing you can do but go, ah, screwed that one up and try not to do it in the future. But, you know, sometimes you can go back and you can't correct things. So, anyway, it's been an emotional week for me. <laughs> I'm still a little edgy. This whole losing my vision thing is, even though it's, we're you know it's hopeful, it's temporary. We can be lots, most of it can be fixed. It's still an emotional thing. Yes, it is. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm kind of on an emotional, edgy emotional thing anyway. 
So, but how do you solve those things? You might go out cleaning up your messes. That's how you solve them. <laughs> you know, you solve them by saying you start to go through and you start to clean up your messes. That's, you know, I haven't been my best self the last month. So, since I had to put those car keys down, I have not been my best self. It's understandable. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to beat myself up over it. Okay, good. But I am going to fix the things that I think I should fix. That's what makes me who I am. Yeah. If I wasn't that, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be who I was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's neither good, bad, or different. There, you, there's many ways to get through these type of things. This is just my way. I'm not, you know, people who have a different path through it, figure out different ways through it. Is I'm not going to judge. I don't judge people for how they get through life. No, you don't. But you know, for me, this is how I have to do it. Anyway, that was a divergent. All right. (laughs) So what we got next? Is science the only philosophy? Well, there's a bit of a. This again is from my philosophy newsletter. Um, is science the only philosophy that can process the fact that sometimes it gives the wrong answer? Well, one, science isn't really a philosophy. It's a process. And science is not actually not as good as people like to think it is as accepting it's wrong. I'm not going to touch anything today. This, we'll talk historically. Forget the modern issues. Just historically. The science fights people that question it. Just like anything else. Just like religion. Just like you and me. Anything that questions what you believe is, you know, viewed as a danger. Yeah. And scientists are humans. What the, dif- the theoretical difference between science and, say, religion, or science and, say, political science, which is a science, but it's more of an art, you actually should be politi- the art of politics. It shouldn't be politi- called political science. It should be called the art of politics. But because it's not, there's no scientific about it. It, it. It's more feeling than it is actual, you know, study because it changes far too rapidly. And in order to be good at it, you have to be in front of it, not behind it. And science, in that respect, would keep you always behind it. Because you're looking at data, then analyzing it, then responding to it. But in politics, you have to respond to it before it happens. Or as it happens. You don't have time. The world moves too fast. It's an art. Yeah. More of an instinct than an art. Anyway. Um, so... <sighs> But science isn't actually a philosophy. It's a process. So that's actually the fundamental dis- the thing there. Science is a process that, at its fundamental level, understands that it will prove itself wrong time and time again because that's actually what it sets out to do. Fundamentally, the process of science is you come up with a hypothesis and you try to prove it wrong, and the fact that you can't makes it correct. The whole point of the scientific process is to try and poke holes in your theory. That's it. That's the whole process. I was taught this by a by a microbiology professor from Cornell, and when I was a high school student, and t- we, my family was con- had you know my family was a, a science teacher. My stepfather was a science teacher. He had a 
professor who was a visiting professor from Cornell at UC Davis. He was a friend of the family. And we spent many hours walking around talking scientific process and scientific theory. And the whole point of science is someone comes up with a theory and everybody else's job is to freaking destroy it. And if it can withstand it, then you know it's something close to truth. And again, something close to truth. It doesn't say truth. <laughs> Never said truth. It's something close to truth. Because there's always the chance that there is something you don't understand at play. There's always chance that there's something you don't know that's going on. And so you've misinterpreted something as something else simply because maybe you don't have the tools to measure it. You don't even know it exists. You know, subatomic particles can be interfering. Like I learned this the other, the other day that um, subatomic particles can actually interfere with computer code. The ones and zeros. It can flip a one to a zero in a computer code, in a, like a me memory module. Which is why they have error correcting memory. It's to correct for those errors. Sometimes when you get a blue screen of death and you're sitting there cussing out Microsoft and everything else, it's a freaking subatomic particle flipped a one and a zero in the wrong spot and it, the thing's like, ah! <laughs> because they didn't have error correcting back in the day. It, who knew? We, we didn't know. We're all sitting here getting mad at Microsoft for crappy code and it's really, it's just the, we didn't know enough to have error correcting because we didn't know it was subatomic particles flipping ones and zeros. <laughs> the world is a strange marvelously complicated place and you know science is just one tool we use to try to understand it philosophy is a different tool they sometimes meld you know philosophers think scientists, scientists explore the, the, pro the process behind that and they tell us no you're wrong or, you know, hey, you're on a path that actually is a, a decent path. They can tell us, you know, they can help correct each other. They can help guide and correct each other. But as we talk about this, there's another, the next one on, on the question on the list is, is, uh, is science above morals? Is something that's claimed to be scientifically proven, is that morally wrong, acceptable? You know, like, say, eugenics. You know, Eugenics is scientific fact that you can genetically engineer human beings, but is it morally acceptable? You can genetically engineer racial traits in and out of society if you so choose. Is that morally acceptable? Science has no morals, one way or the other, good, bad, or indifferent. Science has none. Science just is. What you do with the science is what's moral or not. Just because you can, does that mean you should? Yeah. Just because we can genetically engineer traits in and out of humanity, in and out of our culture, in and out of society, doesn't mean we should. Well, we can do it, but we've decided that that was morally unacceptable because too many human biases get in the way of how to make that decision. There's just no way. <laughs> Human beings are too fallible. <laughs> we're, 
We are inherently fallible creatures to be making that decision. No, none of my, no one person among us, no group of people among us have the moral fiber to be making those decisions. I don't. I wouldn't trust myself to make those decisions. Oh, Hagrid, no. As mentioned, I love my mother and think she's a very highly moral person. I wouldn't trust her to make those decisions. There's nobody I would trust to make those decisions. There's no group of people I would trust to make those decisions. And so those decisions shouldn't be made. But science has no morals. We do. How we choose to apply it. You know, nuclear power versus nuclear bombs. It's the same science. Yeah. You know? So, is science above morality? No. Science has no, no say in morality one way or the other. We can give you data. We can give you information. But we also have to remember that science has different sciences at play when it comes to policy. Huh? Well, there's more than one science to, to consider when it comes to public policy. Oh. You can't just consider, say, medical science. You have to consider social science. You have to consider psychological science. You have to consider economic science. You have to put all that together, and we call that political science, which is why it's an art, not a science. <laughs> so, you know, when these people tell you, you know, it's science isn't this single thing. It's not this holy, all-fired holy thing. It's not how it works. It just gives us data so we can hopefully make better decisions. It's all it really is. The morality of those decisions, what we call human rights, is fundamentally different. See, you're not so lost. You thought you were going to be lost today. I thought I was going to be lost today. No, I told you it was kind of put together in a haphazard Well, the first one just really threw me. <laughs> time. I don't do well with time. I just start to wrap my head around it, the concept. I can feel my tendrils going around it, and then it skitters out of my reach. You know why? Because hmm. it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> why. That's why you can never actually fully wrap your head around it because there's nothing to fully wrap your head around. If you can, if you can actually wrap your head around that, then you can wrap your head around time. Well, I'll consider it. Yeah. Hey, it's it's a long thing. It took it took me a decade of thinking about this stuff. So don't think because you don't have it in ten minutes. <laughs> you know, this is not something you've you contemplate. In, in 10 minutes it's it's a long thought process you know I had lots of insomniatic nights where I spent lots of time thinking about time <laughs> you know that's where that came from laying in bed staring at the ceiling thinking about time alright so the lovey wants a break but I'm going to keep talking while she goes run on the break okay I'm going to go on my break I'll be right yeah. back so let me go here well, um, what, well you want to wait for the ableism in academia until you're back yeah sure okay Alright. Oh, here's one. I'll do the Uber driver one because I was an Uber driver. So the question is Does it bother Uber drivers if their passengers want to stop at a store and tell them the 
Well, tip them extra if they make the stop. Well, yes, it bothers them because you actually have the ability to put the stop in the app. And why don't you? It's, you can do it that way. So it actually the compensation is properly done for and accommodated for in the app. And two, anybody who tells you, I'll tip you later in the app, it's two-thirds of the time they're lying. Or not being honest with themselves, maybe is the better way to phrase that. So it's a, uh, look, your Uber driver is not an employee. They are their own worker, their own contractor. They work for themselves. Uber, Lyft, the DoorDash, these, um, Gig companies contract with individuals to uh, complete tasks. They are their own employers. You know, do you, would you want to be treated that way? They're not an hourly employee. So, you know, when you think about dealing with Uber drivers or any other gig worker, you know, you want to think about yourself. Put yourself in their shoes. Is that how you want to be treated? Now, if you want to slip them a $20 bill and say, hey, wait for me, they'll be happy to do it. But most of them, but, you know, this, oh, I'll tip you later in the app thing is just never really happens. So I don't want to say never because that's being overly, but it, experience tells them that it's not likely to happen. So we are going to create our break for our sponsor and we'll be right back. And we welcome Lovey back from her break, and we welcome you back from joining us. And we can remind you that you can contact Lovey at dear Lovey at late night love us. You can find us at late night love us, and you can find me, or is it on Twitter at jazzrack us? You can find us at late night love. Uh, oh, I think it's the late night love on Facebook and late night love on your other social media platforms and podcast platforms. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Your favorite podcasting platform. All right. So off we go into the wild blue second half of the show. <laughs> I am in a strange mood today. <laughs> okay. Excuse so, me. All right. So we're off to some ableism. Okay. What is ableism? Ableism is the concept that, um, in this case, they're talking about it in context of people who have things like anxiety disorders, bipolar disorders, and these type of things. But it's, it's fundamentally, it's, it's normal able people, the normal average normal person, the theoretical average person versus people who function outside that average. Now, I'm not a particular fan of the term and how it's being used, but the point they make is actually correct. Because calling it ableism, it's, it's, it's victimizing yourself. It's essentially complaining because other people are normal and the world caters to other people being normal. And you're calling it ableism. You're saying they're discriminating against, against me because the world caters to the vast majority of people. And while you have a point that, like, our education system specifically, 
you know, needs to cater to the individual learner, not to this mythical average person. I mean, if your goal is to educate the individual, not just to create an end product, right? Yeah. You're not creating widgets here. You're creating human beings, individual human beings. And so, so they're essentially, they are correct that in academia, specifically, they need to be more flexible in how do we educate our students. People like me who have an anxiety disorder and cannot sit in the classroom for six, eight hours a day. It's unreasonable. And you know, in a huge school, it's not reasonable. But it doesn't mean I can't learn just as much and just as fast and just as well as everybody else. I just can't do it in that environment. So offer me the environment that I can. You know, because the school environment is nothing like the environment in the rest of the world. Even the factory doesn't operate like that. I've worked on assembly lines. Assembly lines don't work like that. They never did. I mean, but if you think about it, if you think about our... Uh, <coughs> if you think Excuse about me. our uh, schools and you think about, say, Henry Ford's factory lines... Theoretically, they operate fairly similar. You go from task to task. You spend a specific amount of time on this task, a specific amount of time on this task. The bell rings. You take your break. You bell rings. You come back. You spend a specific amount of time on this task, a specific amount of time on this task. The bell rings. You go to lunch. You eat your lunch. The bell rings. You come back. You spend a specific amount of time on this task, a specific amount of time on this task. The bell rings. You go have your break. You come back. The bell. <laughs> Right? You do it, you sit down, shut up, and do what you're told. But in the modern world, where does that exist? Maybe government bureaucracy, maybe. But I'm doubtful even that. It just doesn't exist in the real world. The 9 to 5 world doesn't exist anymore. It's a 24 hour world now. And yet we're still preparing our kids for the 20th century. And we're failing those who fit outside the theoretical average, which quite frankly is all of them. There is no such thing as an average child. It doesn't exist. We were talking about this yesterday. All of my children, despite being raised in the same freaking household, are all insanely unique individuals. All of them. Maybe it's a byproduct of how I raised them and allowed them to be organically, you know, become who they wanted to be. But if you organically allow them to be who they want to be, they're all going to be very unique and very different. Why would we stop that? Diversity is our strength. And yet, when we get into to our education system, we literally try to educate it out of us. We try to make everybody the same. Common core. Make everybody the same. What kind of stupid basic concept is that? But it's this mindset. It's the the ableist mindset, if you want to use the term that we're talking about. 
We'll treat everybody as theoretically average and job is done. Life isn't like that. We're all unique, special human beings. Have our own wants, needs, desires. We all learn differently. And if we don't honor that in our education system, what are we doing? What are we doing? All right. Okay, here's one. Mother-in-law. You want to get this one? Sure. My mother-in-law invited herself on a trip that was meant just for me and my husband. We barely get any alone time together. My husband won't tell her that she can't come. Would it be rude if I did? be less rude than her inviting herself to your... <laughs> yes, it would be. That's very rude. Yeah, and uh, I, if it were me, then I'd say, well, then I'm not going. Yeah. You two want to go have a vacation with yourselves, knock yourselves out. I'm staying home and, and getting a nice relaxing week or whatever it is. Just really send them off. Yeah. That sends a clear message now, doesn't it? Yeah, that's how I would deal with it. And that's a little passive-aggressive, so it may not be your style. But, quite frankly, I don't think we would have cropped up in, in our situation because we wouldn't have allowed the, the situation would have been dealt with. But we're going to assume that these people are younger, maybe newly married. Yeah. And so there's mothers having trouble letting go of the strings. You know, emptiness syndrome, maybe. Apparently, yeah. yeah maybe she's a helicopter parent and just... You know, but you know that's a hard thing to do because you don't want to. You for because if you if you go to the mother yourself, you are essentially putting your husband in a in a place that he already is signaling he doesn't want to be in. He doesn't want to have to choose. So don't make him choose. Make her choose. So say no. Then I'm staying home. Because you don't want as as much as passive aggressive it is, is it's the actually least confrontational way I can think of, in short order, mind you. I didn't spend any time contemplating this answer. In short, that is the least confrontational. Because you apparently already talked to your husband about it, and he doesn't want to deal with his mother for whatever reason. And so, if you actually think your conversation with his mother is going to go well. And not going to have repercussions down the road. You know, his mother is going to call and complain to him. You know it. And so, you can circumvent all that. Just skip to the end of the page anyway. And so you don't want to go, you want to go on a vacation with your husband to relax. It's not going to be a relaxing vacation if your mother-in-law is there. That's not the point. So, if they want to go on a vacation together, great, knock yourselves out. I'm going to stay home and relax. At least I get half of what I wanted. <laughs> but the sad reality is, this is, uh, you know, it's far down the road. You're probably going to need some marriage counseling at some point here, where you can start to deal with these communication issues you're clearly having. 
her husband may want to see his own counselor to deal with his issues of being unable to tangle himself with his mother. His mother clearly needs to see a counselor to figure out why the hell she can't let go. But that's the hardest one to send of all. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that's actually the one that needs to happen. Your husband can probably deal without the counselor if his mother wasn't hanging over his head. But because she's the way she is, he's likely going to need to get a counselor to help him deal with how to uh, navigate this. But, and you don't want to be the one to do that because it sets up tension in your marriage that you don't want to, to do. That's, let, that some, let someone else fight that battle. Let a counselor fight that battle. Because that shouldn't be your job as a spouse. Your job is to love and support your husband and not fight him. And so you're loving and supporting to say, look, can you do me a favor? And, you know, maybe talk to somebody about how to deal with, you know, this unhealthy, this relationship with your mother is going to be unhealthy long term. So can we figure out a way to deal with it? And I want to step back. So can we go see a counselor, someone who can help you figure out a way to deal with it? Cause I don't want to tell you how to deal with it. I don't know. That's the long term answer. The short term solution is don't go. Don't go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, number two. Why do Google's workers spend only 3.5 years working there on average? Are the firing rates high or the external proposals after the experience of the company more appealing? Would that be associated with ageism? Yeah, there's a lot of isms these days. A lot of victimization, self-victimization. Um, Every company, only their average worker doesn't stay there that long. This notion, I don't know where we've got this notion stuck in our head that you go and work for people, go to work for a company and stay there for a decade, two decades. It's, that's an outlier, not the rule. People change their jobs. When I was younger, it was had, they had seven jobs in the course of a career, and it's probably double now. <laughs> Having 13, 14, 20 jobs over the course of a career is not uncommon anymore. So just do the math. You're changing jobs every three, four years. You know, remember these are, we're depending on who you're talking to. You're either talking, most of Google employees are not high, high-end programmers. Most Google employees are customer service people. They're low-end customer service people who go off and find a better job once they have experience. Just like everybody else. The high-end computer programmers, they are highly sought after. They are well compensated whether they stay at Google or not. But low-end customer service jobs are a dime a dozen. They can, you know, whether you work at Google or Twitter or Facebook, you know, because a lot of these are in the Bay Area, it's just the same job. Why are you going to stay? You're going to hop. You're going to go. And a lot of these people have degrees. They just don't have experience. So once they gain experience, they go find a, then they go go off and get a, a job in their actually actual degree field instead of customer service. But they needed to prove they could show up, you know, to work every day before someone's going to hire them to do those tasks. That's what you don't get when you go to college. Is you don't get the proof that you can show up for work every day. Because, you know, employers have figured out. Because Google no longer requires a, a college degree. Google, Facebook, to be a programmer. 
It doesn't prove anything. They figured out that it doesn't actually make people a better programmer. That's not how you determine who makes a better computer programmer. The college degree has no bearing. That, so, and in a strange way, it actually educates. It educates them how to do things. But what they want is people who don't know how to do the next thing, but will figure it out. And what happens when you get overeducated in computer programming is you learn what can't be done, so you don't do it. Rather than, that can't be done. Well, BS, I can figure out how to do it. If you go look at all the great computer programmers, you know, Wojcikowski, um, Bill Gates, all those guys who worked at Microsoft, all the early Facebook programmers, none of them finished college. They all left after the first couple of years. They got the basic programming knowledge, and then they left before they were taught what they couldn't do. <laughs> Just saying. You know, the over-education is also a problem. That's the trick. That's the trick. Because if you don't believe you can do something, if someone tells you, if you've been educated that you can't do that, you're never going to try it. And what's the one thing that we've learned? If we try things, we accomplish most of it. Humans are a very resourceful freaking animal. You know, we, we just are. We've gone from hunting with sticks to, you know, landing on the moon and sending robots to other planets. And over a relatively short period of time, when you actually think about the exponential growth, we spent a lot of time playing with sticks and fire. And then once we learned writing, basic writing skills exploded. Human advancement exploded. Exponential advancement. It's amazing. Okay. Okay. How can I avoid the freshman 15? Ah, the freshman 15. It's the 15 pounds you gain your freshman year of college. But first, you have to understand, is part of that is you're getting older. You're still growing. You're actually this thing called, we call filling out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some of that is simply you've just filling out. Now, some of that is you've become lazy and you spent too much time sitting in your dorm room or drinking too much beer and too much pizza and all that kind of stuff. And rather than maintaining the diet that your parents forced you to eat, it's, you know, there is, there is some of that. Mind your P's and Q's. The easiest thing to do is just mind your P's and Q's with your food, right? Calories in, calories out. It's the most basic calculation. Especially when you're young. That's the easy calculation. The other stuff really doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Calories in, calories out when you're young. If you consume twice as many calories as you burn, you're going to get fat. <laughs> if, if you consume roughly the same amount of calories that you burn, you're going to stay roughly the same way. It, it's just the way it works. You know, but you're also, you're gaining muscle mass from that 19, 20, 21 years old. You're gaining muscle mass. Muscle weighs heavier than fat. And so you can actually be the same size and be heavier because you've put on some muscle. So 
Be very careful about how you judge that freshman 15. Be honest with yourself. Look in the mirror and you can, ah, well, that's freaking, look, I look in the mirror, I'm honest with that. There's a fat right there. You know, it's <laughs> a big bunch of fat right there in the stomach. It's, you know, I'm not a fat, obese person. I'm six feet, 189 pounds. So I'm not, but, you know, there's a spot. <laughs> I have no trouble admitting Well, it. you're 50. Yeah, I'm, I'm 50 and I wasn't always 189 pounds, right? I get up to 220. Um, I'm just the heaviest that I get, and so I don't see it. Yeah, well, you know, again, you and me, rose-colored glasses for each other. We've gone over this one a million times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. My almost sixteen-year-old daughter wants a smartphone. How do I get her to stop bugging me about it? She has a flip phone, and that's enough. Oh, geez, if she has a flip plunk, she's getting social pressure. Well, A, you're not going to get her to stop bugging you about it, so you're just going to have to accept that she's going to bug you about it. If you just want her to have a flip phone, because you don't want her to have all the access to all the apps and the Facebook app and the Snapchat app and, you know, all that kind of stuff, that's fine. You have every right to as a parent. My views on that are not relevant but you have to accept the reality of that decision she's a teenager in the world where everybody has a smartphone and at some point she's going to find her own money because you can get a basic smartphone for 150 bucks and you can get a and you can get a basic smartphone plan for what 15 bucks a month what are you going to do then I always go back to this. Your, her job as a parent is to prepare them for the adult world while they're still teenagers. If you can't, she's not practicing now. She's not going to be ready when she's an adult. It's food for thought. The world is how the world is, not how you want it to be. You know, you want to teach her how to do it properly, how to use it with care. Then you're going to have to start now. Yeah. Do you really want to have her thrown to the wolves? Where on her 18th birthday she goes out and gets her own phone, and and now she's doing all this completely unfettered, and can tell and just can flip you the bird. Or do you want to have taught her good habits? Yeah. Sometimes you just have to accept reality, and help them live in the world they have to live in, not the world you want them to. Or accept the natural consequences of your own actions. You don't want to have her cell phone. She's going to continue to bug you about it. That's what teenagers do. Just accept it and decide that you're just not going to, you know, you're not going to get mad at the wind and let it be what it is. Because getting mad at her over it is going to be like getting mad at the wind. It's just pointless. You know, you're just going to create stress and so just to de-escalate. Would be my suggestion. Yeah. Okay, very good. Is there anything I can do to instantly remove panic attacks and anxiety? No. I'm sorry. I've lifelong with anxiety disorder, and the sad truth is no. You cannot instantly remove. What you can do is become stronger in the face of them. 
you can know that they cannot that they do not rule your life. You can build your tools, you can build your toolkit, you can build your your you can prepare your excuse me, prepare yourself. You can do all these things, but you cannot control them. You can become stronger in the face of them. And then they have less power over you. And then you become stronger in the face of them. And then they have less power over you. And it becomes exponential. But the first thing is accepting that there's nothing you can fundamentally do to prevent them. You can't. It's inherent. It's part of you. It's part of who you are. Good, bad, or indifferent. There are good things that anxiety, you know, if you want to actually start to become friends with your anxiety disorders and your panic attacks, figure out the good things it gives you. Because they do. They give you good things. You have a marvelous sense of awareness. Guarantee it. You're, you're hyper aware of your surroundings. It's a gift. It comes with a cost. And so you have to learn how to, you know, manage that cost. But it's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift becomes friends with it. And it controls you less. Me and my anxiety are now buddies. It still pisses me off on occasion, but we're just buddies. <laughs> you know, it doesn't always behave the way I would like them to, but, you know, your friends don't always behave the way you would like them to, but you love them anyway. I mean, uh, it's a strange concept and a strange mindset to wrap your head around, but for me, it made the world of a difference and dealing with it so you know in a sense accepting that there is nothing you can do helps you get through because then you have to then you accept that you have no choice but to get through it and so how do you do that that's the question you want to start asking yourself okay what do we got that's it no we got these uh the power of aiming for progress, not perfection, in a life with chronic illness. Oh, 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 oh. We have these, I missed that one. We have the articles. We've got a couple articles up on there. And you got the how to navigate your relationship when you both have depression. So we got two articles we want to talk about. And we've got, we've got only five minutes. So let's do this uh, power of aiming for progress. Yeah. Because I, that's a, not even chronic illness, whether it's, you know, whether it's me dealing with my eyes or me dealing with my anxiety disorder or you dealing with your bipolar disorder. Perfection is an illusion. Oh, that reason there's no such thing. And so, you know, when you're sitting there aiming for perfection, what are you actually <laughs> aiming for? You're not aiming at anything. You, literally, you think you're aiming at something, but you're not. So you're never going to hit it. It's not possible. <laughs> you're literally setting yourself up for failure. And so you don't want to do that. And you're going to have days where, you know, today is worse than yesterday. So when you have to judge yourself, you have to judge yourself over a longer period of time. You can't judge yourself on a necessarily daily basis. Now, when you're at your lowest point, judging yourself on a daily basis is the only thing you can do, right? Because uh, I'm at the bottom of a bottomless pit. Well, the only thing you can do at that stage is to go up. Go up, yeah. And that's just a day-to-day -day slog, sometimes an hour-by-hour -hour slog. 
right, we know it. When you get in the pit of depression and the pit of de- oh, you're, you're stuck in the pit of despair, and, <laughs> and and you've got and literally putting one foot in front of the other is all you can do. Then you know what? Celebrate it. If that's all you can do, and you still manage to do it, and that's takes all your strength, took all your willpower, took every ounce of energy you could muster was to take one step, then celebrate that damn step. Because you're moving. And you know, here's the thing about falling down. You have to be moving to fall down. You have to be doing something to fall down. No one falls down sitting down. No one falls down laying down. You fall down when you've stood up and you try to move forward. Yeah, so what if you fell down? Get back up. Slowly if you have to. Get help if you have to. We talked about it, you know. Because what else are you going to do? I know it's very inviting to want to lay into your blankets, cover your head in the pillows and let the world pass you by. But then all the beautiful things in the world pass you by. And you literally create the world that you're afraid of. You become the very thing that you don't want to be. It's that desire for daily progress, for weekly progress, for yearly progress, Am I a better human being than I was a year ago? Yes. Wait, winner. That's victory. That's victory. You put enough of those years together and what do you have? A successful life. Yeah, some years are going to be worse than others. Some years are going to go backwards. But you got a lot of years. At the end of the your time here, are you going to be a better human being than you were when you started your journey? That only happens if you try to move forward. You got any closing thoughts there, my love? Um, don't, yeah, you don't have to. I can't really think of anything. Time is your friend. Time is my friend. Yes. I, I, you know. Yeah, well, that, that, kind of a clumsy ending tonight, but it is what it is. Some, they all can't be yet. They all can't be beautiful. I, I didn't have a transition, so I was hoping you had something. So no, I, could, <laughs> I was hoping you had a closing thought, so then I could transition from your closing thought because that's easier for me sometimes. But you know, hey, the all can't be great. <laughs> <laughs> Some transitions just end up being clumsy. And speaking of clumsy, we want to thank you for me and Love. We want to thank you for joining us tonight. Um, join us next week, nine p.m. on Saturdays, and. Uh, Check our Facebook page and and our social media accounts. You know, hopefully we start doing some more things during the week. It's uh, as I adjust to 
my new reality of how life is these days. So, take care of yourselves. Take care of those you love. Love everybody. And good night. Good night.